0: President Biden tested positive for COVID-19 on Thursday. He's experiencing mild symptoms and is expected to make a full recovery. But BA5 is rampaging across the United States, raising COVID rates higher than at any point except for the first Omicron wave. Over the weekend, the WHO declared monkeypox a public health emergency of international concern. And public health officials in New York confirmed the first case of polio in the U.S. for over a decade. Finally, a new analysis by Stat News showed that the CEOs of the top 300 healthcare companies made a total of $4.5 billion in 2021. This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. The President of the United States has COVID. Again, last time it happened, it was Donald Trump in 2020. His case got so bad, he had to be airlifted to Walter Reed Medical Center, where he was almost intubated. But being treated at a state-of-the-art medical center, with medications almost no one else in America had access to at the time, didn't stop him from cosplaying a dictator and defiantly ripping his mask off from the balcony of the White House, even as he was still struggling to breathe. This, of course, after failing to disclose that he knowingly exposed dozens of people, including his erstwhile opponent, at a televised debate. It's been nearly two years since that point, and we've come a long, long way on the pandemic. We understand a lot more about the virus, about how it spreads and how to prevent it from doing that. We have multiple safe and effective vaccines that are authorized for people of all ages. We have Paxlovid, an effective oral antiviral therapy which has pulverized the hospitalization rate. And yet, we still haven't really gotten over the politics of that moment. Today, only 68% of Americans are fully vaccinated, just more than two-thirds. Only 32%, less than a third, are boosted, and by far the biggest single predictor of vaccination status is political ideology. Rather than bring us together, COVID and the shameless, cynical politicization of it by people in power in 2020 seems to have torn the holes in our social fabric even deeper. On Thursday, for the second time, an American president was diagnosed with COVID. President Biden had experienced unrestful sleep the night before and tested positive on a routine rapid test, which he takes every other day. So far, he's experienced only mild symptoms, thankfully. This was President Biden in a message on Twitter from his isolation in the residence of the White House. Hey, folks, guess you heard. This morning I tested positive for COVID. But I've been double vaccinated, double boosted. Symptoms are mild. And uh, and I really appreciate your inquiries and your concerns. But I'm doing well. I'm getting a lot of work done. going to continue to get it done. and uh, And in the meantime, thanks for your concern. And keep the faith. It's going to be okay. The president is 79, an age where COVID can be particularly dangerous. But he's also been vaccinated four times and is being treated on Paxlovid. I expect that he's going to make a full, uneventful recovery. But it's also worth noting how the White House is dealing with this diagnosis. They've been forthcoming and transparent the entire time. The president began isolating immediately upon testing positive, and they've kept the public abreast of his course. But a presidential diagnosis of COVID should force us to take pause. Right now, BA5 is reigniting the U.S. in COVID cases— Cases are up nearly 20% over the past two weeks, and COVID deaths are up more than a third, and we're flying blind. Most municipalities have decommissioned their PCR testing facilities, and most of the rapid tests people are taking go unreported. Worse, we're careening into the fall when cases have historically increased rapidly. And while vaccine manufacturers are testing and rolling out updated versions of the vaccine to catch up with the variants currently spreading, it's possible that our government won't have the money to buy them. Well, it's not that they won't have the money, it's that they won't have the political will. Congress has yet to authorize the COVID funding we need to update our vaccine armament and buy the tests and treatments we'll inevitably need for the fall. I hope Biden's diagnosis will force a change of heart on this, but I worry that instead, it'll entrench congressional Republicans who've been sandbagging the deal, giving them a fresh political opportunity to turn Biden's diagnosis into an opportunity to attack the president rather than unite the country. COVID is not and has never been over. Even if there weren't this major BA5 surge, Millions of people living with immunocompromisation are still at serious risk of deadly infection. Millions more are living with the consequences of long COVID. Today, I wanted to use this opportunity to check in on the pandemic. So I invited Dr. Megan Raney, an emergency doctor and academic dean of public health at Brown University. She's been one of the most steady, most thoughtful commentators on the pandemic. And she joined me for a conversation about the president's diagnosis, the course of the pandemic, and where we go from here. Here's my conversation with Dr. Megan Rainey. All right. Can you introduce yourself for the tape?
1: My name is Megan Ranney. I am a practicing emergency physician and academic dean of the School of Public Health at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island.
0: Well, uh, Dr. Ranney, we really appreciate you making the time, um, considering uh, where we are in this sort of odd moment in the pandemic. I want to just jump right in. Let's talk talk first about the president's COVID diagnosis. Um, In some respects, it's always surprising when the head of state uh, of the most powerful country in the world has a disease that's killed a million people in in his own country. And on the other, there's kind of a moment where you're like, okay, well, we all kind of expected that this was going to happen. This pandemic has been raging for a long time. And this is the, by far the most transmissible, uh, most immune evasive variant that we've seen. Um,
1: what do you make first of the president's diagnosis? I concur completely with you, Abdul. This is not a huge surprise the current surge in cases is both very real and, as you and I both know, very much an undercount. So those official numbers that we're seeing are an order of magnitude lower than what's probably really going on beneath the surface. So I think it's amazing that President Biden has escaped being infected for this long. It's a testimony to the strictness of the precautions that his team has placed around him with masking and testing. But when you're out on the road... You're exposed to folks, and so it's it's really not a surprise. The good thing is, is that they held it off for this long. We've got vaccines and boosters and treatments, um, all of which make it a much lower risk diagnosis for him than it would have been even a few months ago.
0: So uh, I want you to put on your, your, um, your physician hat uh, for a moment. You've got a 79-year-old man, generally uh, quite fit, uh, who's got an extremely busy schedule, lots of exposure risk. Um, has been quadruple vaccinated and is currently being treated on Paxlovid, seems to be fine. Where do you see this diagnosis going? And then from there, um, what are the caveats?
1: So this is the story of almost every emergency department shift that I work right now. I saw a number of patients like this just this very weekend. Um, The fact that he's quadruple vaccinated and on Paxlovid puts him at tremendously low risk of bad stuff happening. And of course, an important thing for folks to know who are listening is that before we prescribe Paxlovid, we check basic blood tests. We need to make sure that your kidney function is okay. We need to make sure that your liver function is okay. And we need to be sure that you're not sick enough to need the hospital at the time when we prescribe it. So already by the fact that he's been prescribed Paxlovid, that means that at the moment that he got it, he was doing well. So you add that quadruple vaccination, which takes down your risk of severe disease and hospitalization significantly, add on to that Paxlovid, which for people who are vaccinated and age 65 plus, lowers your risk of severe disease by another 60 to 80 percent, depending on the study, we're now down to an infinitesimal risk of something bad happening to him. That said, you and I have probably both seen patients who are older, do have some underlying health problems, COVID can uncover things that were already there. And so I would keep a very close eye on him, make sure he's getting rest, make sure he's staying hydrated. And really this next week or so is going to be that kind of big period of, of watching and, and watchful waiting and, and trying to encourage him to take good care of himself. As you
0: uh, alluded to, you know, this is a unique moment in the pandemic, given that you see patients like uh, President Biden all the time. Um, On the one hand, there was a bit of early hope that vaccines were going to do away with the pandemic entirely. On the other, they've rendered the kind of infection that was killing or has killed, still killing, um, thousands of people uh, into a uh, a, a very uh, annoying and frustrating but altogether beatable illness if and conditional, very much conditional on if uh, you have chosen to to follow vaccination protocol, what does the president's current diagnosis tell us about the state of the pandemic, uh, where we are, and how should we be thinking about not just where we've come, but but where we're headed?
1: So I think there are two big takeaways. One is again that we are in the midst of a surge, and like you said, for folks who have followed vaccination recommendations, people that have gotten their double vax and their First booster if they're under age 50, or they're double vaccine their second booster if they're over age 50. For most of those folks, those the vaccinations and the boosters have taken this down to being a much less serious illness. But there are some exceptions. Even among people who have been vaccinated, if you are immunosuppressed, you are still higher risk. And we know that those folks, as well as those who have not followed vaccination recommendations, are the ones who are still largely getting hospitalized intensive care unit admissions and, unfortunately, still dying here in the United States. We have over 400 people per day across the U.S. who continue to die of COVID. You know, I spend a lot of my non-COVID time working on firearm injury, and I think it's worth pointing out that that's four times the number of people that die of gunshot wounds every day across the U.S. Firearm injury is absolutely an epidemic. We have to remember that COVID, despite the fact that we all want to pretend it's gone away, is still killing a lot of folks across the U.S. And it's because of those two things, people that haven't followed vaccination recommendations or whose bodies are just not able to fight this off. The sad part to me, Abdul, is is how many Americans, despite the widespread availability of vaccines, continue to not be fully up to date with the vaccination regimen. You know, the most recent stats from the CDC say that only around a quarter of those age 65 plus have gotten their two shots and their two boosters, despite the fact that that second booster is so influential on helping to keep people out of the hospital with this newest wave. And so the big takeaway for me here is how important for us it is for us in public health, but also as a society, c- to continue to work to keep this disease under control. Right. So we have it right now at this low level where, quote unquote, only 400 people are dying a day. But there's so much more that we have to do as the virus continues to mutate, as we head into the towards the fall where we know that respiratory viruses generally surge. There's so much more that we have to do to to help manage um, this virus and, and to keep it at a level where folks can be out and about without fear of catching a lethal illness. The second thing that I want to say, though, about kind of where we're at with this pandemic is to talk about long COVID, and maybe we can get into this a little later. Vaccination lowers your risk of long COVID, but doesn't make it zero. Long COVID in it of itself is you know, still very much under investigation, but I think it's worth mentioning as we talk about kind of Biden's diagnosis and where we're at in this surge is that it's, there's infection and severe disease from the infection itself, but then there are also it's after effects, which we're still figuring out. I, I really appreciate the way that you broke that down because, um,
0: we are not out of the pandemic yet. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, so much of the way that policy is being made and talked about and COVID is being messaged is almost uh, having the effect of blinding us to where we still are. A, it is uh, failing to talk about the stories of people uh, who, because of immune status, uh, are still at very high risk of very serious outcomes if they were to contract it. B, it's the fact that somehow in this country, we've gotten to the point where we normalize 400 people dying of a disease every single day. Um, That's, you know, a plane crash every single day. Uh, And then C, we're in this place where we are ignoring the long-term implications of Uh, the vastness of the experience of having been infected and the degree to which that's going to have long-lasting implications over the long term. And um, all of these issues are issues that should force us to contend with uh, how we think about the ongoing pandemic. And yet, we are not collecting the data that we need. We're not talking about the data that we collect. And we're normalizing everything that comes out of that very broken process. Um, You talk to people out in the community uh and you know i was just at a couple of events uh, uh earlier today and in some respects this this shows a certain um unwillingness of the broader population to actually continue to engage with covid and on the other i think a lot of folks have realized that because of that it's an impo- unpopular issue and have kind of given up on the leadership aspect of of being willing to talk about unpopular issues when when you lead um if, if you were a COVID czar for a day, uh, and I actually know your, your, your colleague is COVID czar, um, but, but if you were a COVID czar for a day and you actually had uh, like the power to be able to actually get people to pay attention, how would you be talking about this and why?
1: So I think there are two big things that we need to be talking about today. One is about these social and behavioral aspects of COVID. Of course, we all want to be out and about and doing things the same way that we were three years ago, before COVID was a thing, right? I sent my kids to summer camp this year. I'm going on summer vacations. I'm going to restaurants. I'm going to shows, right? And I think that I, as a public health professional, am probably a little bit more cautious than the average American. So if I'm willing to do those things, so is everybody else. We're not made to stay home forever. We're made to be social creatures. We have to think about that social and behavioral aspect of how to help keep people safe knowing that we are social creatures and we want to be out and about working, having fun, seeing our family, doing all the things that are part of normal life. So that would be the first thing in my messaging is that I would be thinking about how to make it really easy for people to stay safe, for people to do the things that help protect them with vaccinations and boosters, and to think, start thinking about how to both improve ventilation, which we know is such a big part, passive, easy part, of helping to protect folks from COVID as well as other airborne illnesses, and about how to make masking easier when we are in the midst of surges in crowded indoor locations. So that would be the first part of my messaging. The second big thing is what you said around folks just pretending it's gone. One of the things that worries me most, and I, I know worries the White House as well, is that... Um, Not just the general population, but also politicians want to pretend that COVID has disappeared. And, you know, they're being forced to make decisions now like with the limited funds that they have left for COVID response. Do they buy PPE to restock our strategic national stockpiles that we never again have to go through that horrible shortage that we had in the spring of 2020? Or do they use the money to buy vaccines and Paxlovid? to treat people when we come to the fall surge. And they're choosing to buy vaccines and treatments, which is probably the right choice for today. But oh my gosh, that's short-sighted. And that makes me awfully worried for the winter to come. If we see PPE prices shoot up again, if we see a new variant that causes another level of worldwide infection and death like we had in winter and spring of 2020, I as an ER doc could be once again reusing my N95 For weeks on end because of that short-sightedness of policymakers. And so those two messages, those two things around working with communities and then around making sure we've got funding and have our eye on the ball so that we don't repeat the same mistakes again is where I think we most need to be.
0: There's also the, uh, the the nature of the virus itself. It has traveled an evolutionary distance as far in the last three to five months, we estimate, as it did in the first year and a half of its existence. And even with potential new vaccines, you got a Novavax vaccine that is BA four BA five specific that's in trials, and then you've got um, the Omicron specific uh, vaccines that are likely to be what we roll out in the fall. We're still playing catch up, mm-hmm. and that's that's assuming we have the money to to buy a whole new armament of vaccines. How how should folks be thinking about the long range evolutionary
1: capacity of the virus? So, I would I will say two things. One is I am not a virologist, so everything I say about the evolution of the virus I have learned from others. Right, I'm an emergency physician and I work a lot on health systems and and behavior change, but I'm not a virologist. The second thing is, is that even for virologists, the crystal ball is broken, right? I think the one thing that we can all say with certainty is that we can't say what COVID is going to do next. Will it continue to mutate along these same lineages and sublineages within Omicron? Or is there something else out there brewing the same way that Omicron was back when we thought that Delta was the most evolutionarily fit variant, right? Nobody thought Omicron was about to emerge, show its head. Um, There's just no way to know. And so, that gets into that second part that I was talking about that I know that the White House is trying to emphasize, which is the need for funding. What we need more than anything is to continue to fund vaccine development, looking at more SARS-CoV universal vaccines rather than being targeted at these specific variants and subvariants. So otherwise, we're facing a world like flu vaccine, Where we're, like you say, we're constantly paying catch up, we're behind the eight ball. Maybe we'll be lucky, maybe we won't. That's not acceptable for something like COVID with um, the level of illness, long term disability, and death that it causes. So I, I would love to see more federal funding for some of these really innovative new vaccines that are currently in phase one and some in phase two trials needs a lot, as you and I both know, to as a scientist, to get those through to the finish line of being FDA approved and ready to be used on a widespread basis across the population.
0: Yeah. And to that point, there, there are two pieces there that um, I want to pick up on. One is that fo- folks um, need to understand that the virus is constantly testing new mutations, constantly. And the ones you hear about are the ones that Kind of make it through the the virus's own phase one, right? Which is to say, can I outcompete what's out there, right? Can this new phase outcompete what's out there, and then you get a variant that starts to take off. Um, and so you're you're getting mutations happening all the time. It's a it's a random process, and the ones that you hear about are the ones that um, start infecting a lot of people because they're that much more fit evolutionarily than uh, what's out there. And so there's constantly a competition between all of these different mutations to do exactly what it's doing which is become more transmissible and then evade our immune responses. And so the notion that somehow like omicron is the end outcome even though it's kind of gotten to the point where this is about as as transmissible as we have seen in 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 recorded in human history, it doesn't actually mean that you don't that it is not possible to be more uh to be more transmissible yet and as our own immune status as a population consistently changes as a function of being infected and reinfected, the evolutionary pressure against the virus will change too and so it may be that you know these omicron uh, mutations wear out their usefulness because enough people get enough immune uh function to them that you then have a different a different a whole different class of, of variants and that is a, a really worrisome thing. The other question here and and, and to your point um Megan, is that we do need a a sort of silver bullet version of the of the vaccine? I worry quite a bit about whether or not there's an economic incentive for any corporation to actually get there. If you're a corporation, you want to sell you want to sell units, and you sell more units when people need upgraded units. And so there's there's almost a <laughs> there's an implicit obsolescence issue here, where the obsolescence of a um, of a version of the vaccine implies that you're always going to be needed to make more vaccine. And it it is really concerning, actually, early on watching Pfizer's uh, CEO keep going onto Twitter to talk about how we're going to need yet more uh, of his product, which, you know, and and, and again, I say this as someone who is uh, fully vaccinated, who believes deeply in the vaccine, but also someone who recognizes that the people from whom uh, we are wedded to buying these vaccines sometimes have uh, ulterior motives. And, you know, I'm, I'm wondering how you think about how we deal with that implicit tension around, you know, the need for a universal vaccine that is not in the best interest of
1: the corporations who sell obsolescent versions of the vaccine. Right. I mean, I think vaccine development in general is not a winning commercial proposition, right? It's one of the reasons why mRNA vaccines never got into consumers' hands. It's not because the technology didn't work. It was because no one ever funded Bringing an mRNA-based vaccine to market because it's really it was really expensive. We spent a right. lot of money in Operation Warp, Warp Speed to make that happen, and it was a off-the-shelf technology. It had already been developed to a pretty high level, and and just had never kind of gotten over that finish line. Same thing is true for work that's being done on malaria vaccines. On vac- you know name, name the the kind of disease that affects the global south, and and so many of them could have effective vaccines, but there's just no. Uh, commercial incentive for investment. So I think it's a really real question, and you know the other side part of it is is that <laughs> we only have to look at some of the mis and disinformation around vaccines right now to see that not just the lack of kind of commercial benefit to companies from developing these vaccines, but also the potential risk from things that may not actually be fact based allegations against vaccine companies, but are still there. So. There, there's a disincentive as well. Um, I am a big believer in the idea that public health should be something that is handled not on a, through a profit motive. Um, it is very difficult to prevent disease if you require making money off of it. So to me, this is something that NIH takes on is creating these types of vaccines and Medicare and Medicaid and Insurance companies, as they currently do, pay for the vaccines, and it becomes something that's done as a public good rather than as a um, profitable enterprise. But uh, I also know that here in the U.S., the profit motive can drive a lot of good sometimes, and we did see aspects of that during the COVID pand- during kind of the worst of the COVID pandemic. So, but long term, uh, we got to grapple with that. I-, I will highlight the work of like Peter Hotes um, down in Texas, right, who's not maintaining a patent for his vaccines. Um, as as a really interesting and benevolent um, way to to handle this dilemma, um, but also an unusual way. It's not not common practice. No,
0: I really appreciate you bringing up uh, Dr. Hotez um, as an example of you know what this ought to be. But you know, in in the the challenge that you name, you know, particularly around something like malaria, where we're not that far away technologically from being able to do this. It's just that. A corporation can't identify a paying set of customers. It's not that there aren't customers; it's that they don't have much money to pay. Um, and uh, and so it's a, it's an important point. I want to move um, to the the question of what is our responsibility to folks who whose immune status keep them uh, in a circumstance where um, the the very existence of this level of spread precludes any of the the kind of back to normal that you named that you're partaking in and I'm, I'm partaking in um, that we can take for granted our, um, our, our, our immune status and our ability to, to fight off even this variant with with the, the the combination of having been vaccinated and in my case having been infected, I don't know about yours. Um,
1: Knock on wood, not yet.
0: <laughs> all right, you're like one of the you're, you're you're one of the last people standing here. Um, <laughs> I,
1: I blame it on all of my ERX, but you know there have been recent studies showing that people that got exposed to a lot of coronaviruses pre SARS CoV two may have some uh, sort of innate immunity. I blame it on all of those sounds. shifts in our pediatric emergency department <laughs> taking care well, of you. Cre- you credit you credit all of those. shifts. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: um, so, how, how how do we as a society think about our responsibility um, to to a group of people who have extreme risk um, that outstrips um, where most folks are headed?
1: Oh, I think this is one of the most difficult questions that we have to grapple with. You know, I'll, I frequently say when I'm talking about equity in health care, health systems, and just in the idea of whole body health that. Um, every one of us is going to have a disability at some, par- at, at some time in our life, right? That's just, that is the reality. And yet we pay so little attention to making sure that we are taking care of those who are currently living with disabilities, despite the fact that we're going to be one of them someday if we aren't already. And immunosuppression is one of those, right? It's not just people with um, innate disorders. It's also people that are on medications that suppress their immune system because they've got rheumatoid arthritis or you know, other diseases that require immune-suppressing drugs, or because they're cancer patients and undergoing chemo, right? There's a gazillion reasons that folks are living with immunosuppression. I think there are some lovely things like Evishield, which is not adequately um, promoted or used among people living with immunosuppression that can be quite helpful in preventing the worst of this disease. Um, I think there are treatments such as some of the newer monoclonal antibodies, right, we have the one remaining one that works, but there are other ones under investigation, um, which can be helpful for folks um, with immunosuppression to avoid the worst effects should they happen to catch it. But I I think we have to be, I would love to see a society that cares more about taking care of those who are living with uh, chronic illnesses and, and disabilities I also think I need to be honest, which is that it's not the society that we live in. So the, the safest and most lovely thing for us to do would be to try to stop the spread of this disease, for us to mask when we're in the midst of a surge, not just for our own sake, but for the sake of those around us. But you and I both know that's not that's not the world that we can live in. So I can talk Pollyanna-ish about where I wish we were for the sake of the, to, to allow folks to be out and about. Um, and, and I think we should talk about that as an ideal state in the midst of surge is we can also work hard to try to, right, it's the whole equality versus equity um, debate to, to try to create systems that allow those who are immunosuppressed to get back towards normal with Evershield and monoclonal antibodies being part of that.
0: Yeah, I, I appreciate um, your more pragmatic point and then also the the, the ideals that we have to continue to... Speak into existence. Um, I mean, we live in a society where we don't even guarantee everyone access to healthcare. In a world where literally seventy percent of us are or more, more are born in hospitals, and most of us will also die in hospitals, um, the notion that that you know people think that somehow it, this is not a right, not a not a, a requirement of uh, living in a in the richest, most powerful country in the world that we can't even establish that as part of our baseline. You know, it speaks to the certain strain of individualism that I think has uh, flummoxed our ability to handle this this pandemic before it ever happened. Um, I, I want to talk about two other epidemics: one related and and one new. Um, long COVID is going to emerge as I think the long tail, um, and and could you know in the long term actually account for more disability overall than um, than acute COVID did, and you know this is not. A new situation. Almost every infectious ailment has a chronic version, right? Whether you're talking about, you know, chronic chickenpox uh, that sits dormant until it 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 comes out uh, in the form of shingles. You think about polio and chronic polio in the ways that it it can take your um, your abilities and then and also ultimately take your life. You think about, um, you know, chronic uh, staph infection. Uh, you think about all, all of these sort of diseases that have this chronic outcome and we've sort of ignored that because the acute outcome of covid was so profound and it's the the worst uh, single pandemic we've dealt with as a as a as a globe. Um, what are the things that we need to be doing right now uh, to prepare for the the broader consequences of long covid.
1: So the first and biggest thing is to define it. Data on long covid right now is really poor quality from a scientific standpoint. So, you know, the ranges of estimates of how many folks who have COVID are, who are going to develop long COVID, right, it ranges from like 2% to 70%. The truth is probably somewhere in between those, but we don't know. We don't yet know exactly what causes it. Um, the examples that you gave are of latent virus that stay in your body and then kind of emerge in periods of stress or immunosuppression or other illnesses. There are other theories that it's around kind of changes in some of the um, kind of function of your body around kind of microcirculatory clots or around autoimmune dysfunction that are caused by the virus, but the virus itself doesn't stick around. That's a really important thing for us to understand so that we can develop treatments. We need to know who's at most risk Um, in order to be able to prevent it and and to treat it. So there's that first really basic thing. And then the second part is, is that we need to prepare as a society. You know, if you look at uh, chronic fatigue syndrome from mono, um, some of the post-flu syndromes that emerged after the Spanish flu, um, we're going to have to start thinking now, to your point, about how we will handle stuff that emerges, either that sticks around or that emerges months to years after an infection. Um, And, you know, here at Brown, at the School of Public Health, we do have a long COVID initiative that is not doing that basic science research as much as um, thinking about the societal implications. And I will tell you that employers and, and government agencies are thinking hard about how they are going to handle what they expect to see as a rising number of disability claims, how to make appropriate accommodations for folks that are living with long COVID um, and, and how to kind of prepare our insurance systems appropriately to be able to deal with long-term consequences. There are no answers yet. It is um, very much an area of important inquiry, and it's an area for us as public health professionals, as citizens, to be aware of and involved in, because we can help to shape the course of what happens next.
0: I, I, I uh, want to pick up on that point, because I, th- I think y- your, um, your point about what happens next is really quite critical. And we already see this coming. We already are dealing with the acute consequences. And my fear is that for the most heinous political reasons, you have a few policymakers who are blocking funding for acute COVID right now in the middle of the acute crisis. And I worry about whether or not there will be the political will to fund the long-term consequences. on the one hand, uh, you could see the present circumstances continue. On the other, we did see this major about face on funding for mental health among that same group of people because mental illness um, started to literally take life expectancy away in the communities that they represent. And um, I hope that it won't have to come to that, right? Where you you think about the long range consequences of long COVID coupled with all of the other um, all of the other diseases of despair as, as we've turned them that affect these communities, because it's not like with COVID, everything else went away. Um, it, they're all still there. In fact, they're all likely a lot worse. And speaking of things that got a lot worse, um, we are now dealing with a new public health emergency of monkeypox. And y- you would think, right, the, the sort of conventional wisdom would be that we um, largely failed to contain COVID. But COVID was really a, a serious containment challenge for a lot of reasons. It was a new ailment, that behave differently than the cousin that we were trying to compare it to. That is extremely transmissible and and really quite deadly. Monkeypox is actually 101 when it comes to public health, right? Because y- you have this long incubation period. You have effective vaccines, effective treatments, and it and it was uh, um, largely contained within a group that we could identify and really get services to. And the importance of that that long incubation period is that monkeypox is one of those rare diseases where someone can be technically infected, you can vaccinate them within five, six, ten days, and you can actually prevent them from getting the full outcome, right? And and that gives you a long window. And we had the vaccines, like they exist, mm-hmm. unlike COVID, where it took us I mean, we had to we had to marshal the the height of scientific capacity to figure out how to 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 manufacture vaccines at scale. This is not that. Uh, and yet we are in the situation where a slow moving uh, epidemic is now a public health emergency. And it tells us a lot about what we have failed to learn, right? Conventionally you'd say, well, we learned our lesson. We, 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 we tightened, we battened down the hatches and we weren't going to get caught with our pants down next time. No, that's not actually what happened. It's like the pants are perpetually off, they're gone. And um and our 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 public health system uh, fundamentally failed on this front. Um, as you think about the challenge of monkeypox I'd love to get your perspective both on what needs to be done right now, but also what this tells us about the long-range
1: rebuilding we need to do. Oh, gosh. <laughs> we could have a whole hour of talking about uh, that second question. Um, you know, so we're today, as we're talking, we're a little more than two months out from when the first monkeypox case was identified in the United States in Massachusetts on May 18th, uh, if I recall correctly, and we are just scaling up testing and getting vaccines out the door in a, in a major way. I actually think the speed at which we've responded is thanks in part to the fact that we had some smallpox preparation already in place. But I, I attribute, you know, it's like one of those on the one hand, on the other hand. On the one hand, our response could have been worse. We could have just ignored it altogether. Uh, on the other hand, it could have been so much better. And the reasons why I think it wasn't better and faster are because of the lack of central coordination, right? We had multiple agencies, HHS, right? Within, we had FDA, we had CDC, all ASPR, all kind of part of the response system without a single coordinator and a single driving force saying, this is an emergency and we have to go all out, right? So it moved at the speed of typical governmental work rather than necessarily at the speed that uh, a a potential new epidemic deserved. Um, And I think... The, the lack of kind of, like you said, the lack of funding and kind of underlying public health workforce is also part of it. The fact that we were all burnt out and exhausted from the last two and a half years certainly played into the lack of response here. I have to wonder, had the monkeypox outbreak happened pre-COVID, would our response have been better or worse? Everyone is just done, right? We've lost, just like we've lost healthcare professionals at unprecedented rates, we've also lost public health professionals at unprecedented rates over the last uh, year and a half two years I think there's some promising developments right we're seeing um, some increased we're seeing increased leadership from the White House um, we are seeing the FDA move faster than it has previously to um, clear uh, vaccine doses that were sitting in Denmark that had already been approved by the European equivalent of the FDA and to get those shipped to the US a little faster than they had planned on doing. Um, We're seeing collaborations between government testing and hospital testing faster than we had um, during COVID. So I'm seeing some promising signs. But to me, it is, like you say, just another marker of how much work we have to do. Um, I know there have been announcements this week that uh, or some leaks that ASPR, um, which is the strategic preparedness response arm of HHS, may get elevated in terms of pandemic response and coordination, which is, I think, what we so desperately need. It's what Biden did by putting first Jeff Zients and now Ashish Shah in charge of COVID response at the White House. I think it highlights that right, we, we need to have a person who makes decisions and directs the response. And to me, that's one of the takeaways. And then we need to do a better job of training and supporting public health professionals and getting them out on the ground, which is yeah, that's why that's why I'm in this academic dean job here at Brown is because I believe that so strongly. It's not a problem we can fix overnight, though. It's going to take us a bit of time, just as it's going to take us time to rebuild the healthcare workforce um, to get folks trained and in, in, in the field and supported appropriately.
0: <laughs> I, I want to just uh, pick up and appreciate your point about um, just how fried people are uh, in public health. And look, nobody goes into public health cause they want to make a lot of money or get famous. <laughs> <laughs> nope. <laughs> like, they, they, they go into it because they care about, uh, taking care of people and they believe in systems. And this has been the single, uh, hardest moment to work in public health. Um, I talked to all my colleagues and everyone is just fried. And so in some respects, it's really hard to mount yet another response in the middle of a first response that's still not, you know, adequately addressed. And on top of that, public health has been systematically defunded for decades now, in part because of the point that you made earlier, which is it's very difficult to sell people a non-thing in a, you know, hyper-capitalist society when there are a lot of people who are there to sell them the answer only after they uh, discover their need for it, right? And, you know, if you if you want to – you sort of compare the plight of a uh, – a, a public health professional to a surgeon, right? A public health pr- professional wants you never to need a surgery ever. And most of us would want to be in that situation, but it's relatively thankless because we're telling people all the bad things that could happen to them and asking them to change their behavior to protect them from ever needing a surgery. Whereas if you're the surgeon, right? And somebody needs a surgery, the after as soon as you give them the surgery, you get paid a ton and everyone thanks you so much for having done that and saved their life. And, um, and so- It is the way our – the combination between our psychology and our economic system come together, leave us uh, systematically underfunding public health. So leaving even the professionals who are out there doing this job thanklessly um, underfunded and then uh, largely uh, putting more and more money into the parts of our healthcare system that are the easiest to sell. Uh, you know, and and you know you think about you walk into the atrium of a hospital. It's always really, really nice, right because that's the part that m- most of us sort of see, understand, and uh, use to solve the implicit moral hazard of asking whether or not we're getting good health. Um, and so you know we, we, we fund a lot of really, really nice gurneys and atria, and we don't fund that much when it comes to disease surveillance and, and the capacity to intervene early on in an epidemic. Um, Dr. Ranney, we really appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Uh, folks um, can find your work, uh, usually just by turning on the television, but um, <laughs> if, you could, uh, if you could tell us a little bit more about what, what's on your mind and what you're working on, we'd love that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, I am active on Twitter, at Megan Ranny, um, where I share my latest thoughts around whatever issue I'm seeing in the ER today. Um, I'm also uh, all, you know, here at Brown, and folks can come and find me there um, as well. I uh, do, in non-COVID times, do a lot of work around firearm injury and use of technology to identify and prevent violence and related behavioral health problems like opioid use disorder, depression, post-traumatic stress. But as with all of us, both because of my frontline work in the ER and because of the behavior change theories that I know work, I've gotten quite involved with, with uh, informing emergency preparedness and response in different ways um, over the last two years through COVID work we'd love to have
0: you on to talk um, a bit more on, on firearms and uh, and opioid use disorder as well. We appreciate you joining us to talk about COVID and a bit on monkeypox today. That was Dr. Megan Ranney. She is the academic dean of public health at Brown University uh, and emergency physician. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you. As usual, here's what I'm watching right now. The WHO has declared monkeypox a public health emergency of international concern. Though a committee of experts who met last Thursday to discuss the outbreak couldn't reach a consensus, WHO Secretary General Tedros Ghebreyesus unilaterally made the decision considering what a PHEIC implies. Quote, an extraordinary event that constitutes a, quote, public health risk to other states through the international spread of disease and that could, quote, potentially require a coordinated international response. Check, check, and Check. The Public Health Emergency of International Concern Declaration comes at a time when there has been nearly uncontrolled spread in the U.S., with 2,800 cases across 44 states. In many ways, the fact that monkeypox has spread this fast indicates just how broken our public health infrastructure is following two-plus years of COVID. Public health workforces are fried, and public health itself has been so politicized that high-level second-guessing and hesitation, it's hampered quick responses. That and public health agencies have just been underfunded for decades— Monkeypox, by its nature, should have been far easier to contain than COVID. We know what we're dealing with, there are available vaccines, and it has such a long incubation period that vaccines can be given after an exposure and prevent full-blown infection. That and the fact that monkeypox has remained tightly clustered. Meanwhile, public health officials in New York confirmed the first case of polio in the U.S. for over a decade. The patient in Rockland County was unvaccinated, but appears to have been infected with a vaccine-derived version of the virus, a weakened but still living version. That version is no longer used in the U.S., but it's still common in many parts of the world. It's likely that this person was infected by someone who'd recently been vaccinated abroad. I worry that anti-vaxxers are going to use this as an argument against vaccinations when it's exactly the opposite. This person would never have been infected if they had been vaccinated. Their body would have easily swiped away this weakened version of the virus. It's the fact that they were not vaccinated that rendered them susceptible. In the past, when polio vaccinations were nearly universal, this wouldn't even have been a worry. But today, given the growing strength of the anti-vax movement, more people are going unvaccinated and they're opening the door for infection. I assume that if you're listening, you've probably been vaccinated for polio. But if you haven't, please do. And please make sure that any folks who are hesitant understand that the best way to protect yourself from polio of any kind is to get vaccinated. In healthcare news, our colleagues over at Stat News recently published a look into the earnings of healthcare CEOs in America the top 300 CEOs made a cumulative, get this, $4.5 billion, yes, with a B, billion dollars in 2021. It's not like we were paying for a job well done either. Don't forget, this was a year where 415,000 Americans died of COVID and where life expectancy fell. In fact, that $4.5 billion, dollars, it was seven times as much as the CDC's entire budget to fight infectious diseases. Seven times as much but it's a reminder that in our healthcare system, we monetize illness. We pay after people are already sick, rather than investing in the means of keeping people healthy in the first place. That's it for today. On our way out, don't forget to rate and review the show. It goes a really long way. Also, if you love the show and want to rep us, I hope you'll drop by the Crooked Store for some america dissected merch. We've got our logo mugs and t-shirts, our Science Always Wins sweatshirts are 80% off, and dad caps are available on sale. Our safe and effective tees are on sale for $20 off, while supplies last. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media Our producer is Austin Fisher Our associate producer is Tara Terpstra Veronica Simonetti mixes and masters the show Production support from Ari Schwartz, Ines Mata, and Ella Price Our theme song is by Takaya Suzawa and Alex Ugiera. Our executive producers are Sarah Geismer, Sandy Gerard, Michael Martinez, and me, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed Your host, thanks for listening